Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. I've looked forward to releasing this one for a while. I interviewed Maggie about a month and a half ago, and I wanted to wait till uh, December because it's the giving season, um, which ironically enough, I have two messages. Number one, please listen to this and please consider uh, making a donation. Uh, and then also, quite frankly, uh, we are on the same mission as well at the Started Up Foundation. We are currently seeking donations this holiday season for our 501c3 charity. Started Up Foundation strives to get teens out of complacency, out of purposelessness, and into an entrepreneurial way of being. Our programming, our hackathons, our pitch competitions are all centered around students having this entrepreneurial way of being, knowing that they can make a difference. So if you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation, the link is in the description for the podcast. Now, back to Maggie. I had discovered Maggie and her work, and I have been blown away. And honestly, this is one of the top podcasts I've done. Her mission, her drive is beautiful. And um, since we've done the show, I've talked to her another time, and, and I deeply want to be able to help. But if you have a daughter or son and they're considering um, work uh, you know, past high school or especially in the charity fields, this woman is an absolute inspiration. So for these reasons, please share this episode. Also give uh, Blink Now, uh, their charity, a look. They are a more than deserving uh, charity. And also take a look at her accolades. She won CNN's Person of the Year. She got an award from the Dalai Lama. This is quite an accomplished young lady. So as a dad and as a teacher, I sincerely love this episode. I hope you enjoy it too. I am now thrilled to have on Maggie Doyne. I have looked forward to this conversation longer than you know, because I, I love your story, but I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. So... I don't even know where I've like got several things planned out. I don't know where to begin because I am a big fan for several people. Um, and I'll, and I'll talk to you about my daughter here in a second, but of, of a gap year. Um, mm. It's not for everybody, but you, and I'm not going to spoil the story, but you took a gap year to the most insane next level. So can we start there? of you like, hey, I'm not sure if I'm going to go straight to college. You had decided to do a gap year. And then? And then, yeah. So I ended up in Nepal raising children, running a school and a women's center. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, Thank you for being on like the show. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of steps that led up to that. And like you said, why you're a fan of gap years and why... I'm a big proponent of gap years is that in our culture, at least in the culture of suburban New Jersey, white girl of, of somewhat, you know, middle-class privilege, we are groomed to think that college and success looks one way. And, you know, you get into this big name school, hopefully, and you, you know, just go, 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 go. And we focus a lot on the outside and what degree and all of these external factors that our culture deems as success. And I was, I was that kid that, you know, was groomed for got to get a scholarship, got to get to college, got to get into a good school. And at the very last moment, I kind of started to question that culture of, 
that is the end all be all. And that's where I'll find the answers. And, um, I questioned it and that's what led me to the gap year and the gap year community. We like to call it a year on instead of a year off and to step out of the four walls of a classroom that you've been in since the time you were four and just look at what that rite of passage, what that coming of age can look like out in the world as the classroom, I guess. Wow. Um, A, the classroom of the world. I love that. Uh, And B, uh, like just the fact that you started to question this. And and what what year was this again? Was this like 2013? No. This was way back in 2005. I turned 33 tomorrow. Okay, 2005. (laughs) Well, I know. But but I remember like you hit critical mass around that time where all of a sudden you blew up and CNN named you like volunteer of the year. I'm butchering this. But like, like... the thing that's always impressed me about you is that before there was media hype, there was work. Cause oftentimes, and I'm not saying this is bad, but like oftentimes there's media hype because it will be successful, but media hype has to come first. Uh, Mm. Fake it till you make it. And, and that, and that's a formula and it works for some people. You did the tireless work and eventually people caught up to you. That is Mm. rare. And I, I am so <laughs> sorry. This is my dad moment. I am so proud of mm, what you. you were called to do. Um, and you have not, you're even being humble in this interview. Damn it. Like, <laughs> you, like, please let this be a time where you're like, yeah, I went out and like, what are some of the things you immediately started doing? Like, what was that call to action? You, you'd mentioned, you know, the, 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 the shelter and the women's center, all sorts of stuff. But like, what was that immediate call to action? You go out there and you fall. You, well, actually, I'm not going to run your story. I kind of know what it is, but explain what that call to action was when you got there. So I was traveling and don't get me wrong. Not all of this travel was like service. So a lot of it was just fun and cultural immersion and scuba diving and, you know, learning with monks on a monastery about meditation practice. So a lot of it was just fun and, you know, really experiential and just seeing the world outside of you know the little bubble of New Jersey that I grew up in and then I suddenly just by happenstance by meeting you know a young refugee friend who'd fled her country during a civil war of Nepal which I really honestly could not have even picked out on a map at the time I, I knew nothing about what was happening but by chance I go to Nepal and I become really incredibly passionate about orphan care and you know what trauma looks like for women and children coming out of a civil war and a community and what it needs and and long story short I was I was kind of lost I was seeing suffering I was seeing refugees sleeping under plastic fleeing their country being recruited to fight in a rebellion um, as children and and I came face to face with um you know, a little girl on a riverbed, and she was one of many children who were breaking rocks. And they had big rocks that they were taking with mallets and breaking into little teeny tiny pieces of gravel to sell for about a dollar at the end of the day and have their most basic human needs and rights met. And I looked at these children who were three and four and seven and eight years old breaking rocks. And I was just like, I can't, I can't look away. I can't turn around. And there was this one little girl named Hema, and she said, Namaste, Didi, with a big smile. And I thought, 
what if I could do something for Hema? What would an education look like for her? How could her life change the trajectory of her life and her future with just a really small step? And, and I also think I saw me. I saw this little girl who could have been me, who was me. She, she and I were the same, except as a girl of privilege in suburban New Jersey, I was playing soccer and going to public school and taking the SATs. And she, you know, would have been forced into marriage. And she was working, breaking rocks all day in the cold and the heat and the rain. And so I had that moment with him on the riverbed. And I just decided I want to stay. I want to do something. I want to create a home for children. I want to put children to school and see how their lives change. And um, that was the moment for me. My year on, my gap year, my gap life, I guess, is what it's become. Because to kind of skip to the end, I, I did not go back to college. I stayed right there and I've lived in the call for 15 years now. So also dad moment, you call back <laughs> home and you're like, hey guys, I'm Stan. What Ooh. was their response? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of Ava or Anna calling me and going, <laughs> like going to some place that's, let's be honest, not 100% safe, um, not New Jersey. And them getting a phone call, like, I'm staying. And, I, and, yeah. and like, they cannot question your intent. Um, like, you can't. But how did they respond? So I had to call them because I needed my babysitting savings. I had saved up $5,000 from the time I was, like, 11, working as a mother's helper and summer jobs. And um, we were three girls in my family. I'm the middle of, of three teenage daughters, and we're all close in age. We're called the Doyne Girls. And um, you knew that when you called our house on the cul-de-sac, you could get a babysitter. And so I'd saved up working, as many of us do, um, $5,000 exactly. And there was a little piece of property that was for sale in Nepal for $5,000. And my no, now co-founder, Tope, and I really wanted to buy this. And we saw this need for a home. And so I had to call my parents and convince them to send me my money. Um, and it was a very long conversation indeed with lots of questions. And I think at this point, reality struck. They were really actually pro-Gapier like you are as a dad. But the idea of it becoming something more permanent and so far away. Yeah was definitely scary. My mom has this line that I love to share. And it's that when I won CNN Heroes, you know, so many people went to my parents and they were like, you must be the best parents of all time. And how did you raise Maggie to lead this life of service and blah, 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 blah. And she goes, Maggie, now people think I must have been this awesome mom for, for raising you and CNN Heroes. But if anything had happened to you, I would have been on CNN as the worst mother as the worst we would have been the worst parents in the world um so I think it was really scary for them and I think that they're a really big part of the story and saying yes and so many parents are like no you're going to college come home this is what you're doing and then that is that safe I don't know is that is that yeah. safe it, oh, I don't no. think so right you were at the apex of where we're at with our foundation mm. um you know I run a nonprofit that we try to get students into an entrepreneurial way of being and that is to say that you shouldn't have to be a start your own business. But if you think like that, you know, the, the classic case, the lady that worked for United Airlines, hey, if we take the olive out of our salad, we're going to save 500000 That's entrepreneurial. That's, that's an entrepreneurial way of being. And we're trying to get more students to be able to find things that bother them. 
Um, and, and what I love, like literally one of the visualization, visualizations I do, actually, I literally 45 minutes ago just got out of a classroom and was talking about just this, is mm-hmm. that um, I'll have students close their eyes. I'm like, okay. And this was a bunch of high school freshmen. And so I said, okay, let's just pretend that you walk down to the gas station right now. They believe that you were 18. You bought a scratch off lottery ticket and you won $2 million. Now that is to say that you have $1 million after taxes. What do you do? And what I love Maggie is, is because they'll go through sometimes the most cliche answers and then they'll think about it. Cause I'll ask them, Oh man, I'll buy myself a house. Okay. Um, like what now? Like you don't have to do anything for a while. So, you know, I'm going to go to the beach and and drink on the beach. Okay. You're going to be bored after a week. Okay. You're right. Mm. I'm going to go travel around. Okay. You'll be jet lagged after a couple months. Yeah, you're right. So once they had their basic needs, like I want to buy a house. I'm like, what do you want to do? What are you going to do? Money doesn't, you don't have to work for the next five years. What do you want to do? And you know what most people instinctively eventually boil down to? I want to help people. Most people deep down, if money is not an object, most people just, I think, are kind. And you won life's lottery, Maggie. I know. I know. You really did. Off of $5,000. Yeah. And the willingness to go, screw it. I'm going to go. No, you're right. Like it may have started off in naivete of like, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to, and I'm going to swim and do and like, but all of a sudden you are called to action. And I love that because yeah. in that moment you have unlocked life's joy. I am staggered with how that happened and just am so I want everybody listening to this and anybody that's ever come into contact with you, like you found the key to life. Hmm. I I say that, I know it's, I'm, I feel that I did win. Um, I mean, how few of us really truly get to live their purpose and feel that they found a purpose-driven life and human connection. Yeah. yeah. What I think most people like think that you do have to go to Nepal. Like I personally think, like I, I won life's lottery because I was a teacher mm. and I, and I would have, you know, I'd have that opportunity. You don't have to go across the world. It's awesome that you did, but like there's people in need right now. Cause when people will say, Oh, you know, every now and then a kid would jokingly say, what's the purpose of life? I'm like, that's easy to love and be loved. Mm. And if you want to be loved, you should show it first. And here you go out and you're like, you had compassion started with a girl and you're like, I am her. I, mm-hmm. I, I wish we could clone that mindset and spread it and spread it and spread it, which is the reason yeah. why you're on. So, uh, sorry, I'm fanboying a little bit, and it's unprofessional mm-hmm. me. But um, thank you. So, uh, w- tell me what then happened next. I mean, because ne- then it became several other things. You you bought the piece of land, you started, um, and and then where did it go? So next, I buy the piece of land thinking I don't know what I was thinking I I, it was it was little teeny tiny baby steps just there was no grand scheme um there was no big plan I just knew that I couldn't look away on the riverbed and I knew that I couldn't turn back and just go back to college and do a bunch of jello shots and pledge for a sorority like I I I didn't I didn't want that and so I came back and the only thing I knew 
the only way I knew to make money. I knew we had sketched up this plan. I was learning Nepali. I was going to the library and reading books on development and world change and blueprints and why we've come so far as a human civilization, you know, space travel and computers. And this was kind of the time that the iPhone was coming out. How have we come so far and we have not figured out how to take care of our human family, of our children. Like the most sacred thing that we have on this earth is a baby child. It's, it's, it's miraculous. Our human, our human foundation is built on children. And we have our kids in this world, hungry, cold, starving, unsafe, and dying. I mean, we've, we've got a hundred million orphans in the world and um, we can't do that. Like, what are we doing here? And so I, I wrestled with this question. I was like, well, I can do this one little piece, but I need money. Cause yes, like you said, it would have been great if I won that lottery scratch off. <laughs> but in a way I didn't have, that's the one thing I didn't have. And looking back, I think that was the greatest gift. If I was like a trust fund kid or had a big college fund, I think I would have messed everything up, but I didn't, I had nothing. I had zero. I had lice in my hair. I was skin and bones from being in Nepal. I come back to suburban New Jersey. The only thing I know how to do is babysit. So I get every babysitting gig in the entire universe. I'm babysitting morning, evening, night, house sitting, dog sitting, plant sitting. And I just make money and try to sketch up this little teeny tiny home in Nepal, rural Nepal. And that's what I do. And um, at the end of the day, you know, I couldn't make ends meet. I needed to buy iron for the roof. And, um, it was $2,200 and I just didn't have it. I knew I couldn't make it with all the babysitting in the world. So I did a garage sale and we made $2,230 at that garage sale. And then a little newspaper picked up the story and said, girl, trying to build a home for kids. And, um, that's when community and people came forward and the $20 check started to come and the $1,000 check. And then one woman met me for lunch and she's like, you spent 5,000 of your babysitting money. I match you 5,000. And in the course of just a mm. few months, um, the home, the home was built and I started taking in my first few beautiful, amazing children, Nisha and Sova and Goma and Krishna. And um, what I didn't expect, the biggest surprise of all is that I would become a mother and, um, you know, just so much love. And like you said, those first couple of years, I was just doing the work. Like I just wanted to like babysit, make a little bit of money and raise my children and my family and, you know, be something to someone who needed it. And I knew family, I knew love. I'd had, had a loving blissed out childhood with a trampoline in my backyard and soccer playing ponytail girl. I knew how to do that. I knew how to you know, put a swing set in the front yard and play music and dance and have family circle and have meals together. I, I knew that life. And so I was able through my privilege, I think, to reflect that in the lives of my children and help recreate that. And I watched the healing that took place. The kids, you know, were able to yeah. feel that the next meal would come. And then after their basic needs were met, they were able to learn how to read and read Harry Potter and go to school and and it was miraculous to watch. And um, slowly the world started also watching, which was the biggest surprise of all. I can only imagine, and in some ways I don't want to imagine, like had you done this in the era now of virality, in some ways, <laughs> well, I mean, like in some ways be careful what you wish for. Like 
and I'm not, this is not a judgment call, but sometimes when you achieve success too fast, it's just that it's too fast. You know, if all of a sudden you were on CNN and you're walking across the stage in year one, would you have continued? I don't know. You know, like, like fame is a hell of a thing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah, no, the first, I'd say the first like six, seven years was just like raising the kids. And it was so blissful. The kids, like their favorite childhood stories are from that time. Cause like we had no water. We'd have to like walk a mile and carry water in our jug. We didn't have electricity. Like we, I never knew how like we'd make it through the next month, but we had like so much love and yeah. And it was just like, I worked really hard and could make ends meet. Cause a little bit goes really far over there. Yeah, And then, um, I think it was also the beauty and the magic of that period of time and just being a startup, um, which I know this will resonate with you being an Mm. entrepreneur. Um, It was that I didn't have this big grand scheme. And when you don't have like a big pot of seed money, you just take a little baby step. You just, you look at what's organic and you make the little alterations and you say, okay, I only have 20 bucks, but what's the furthest I can make this go? Oh, and now Mm. I, I, I have 20,000. What, what's the next step? And you don't make these big grand schemes. You take, you know, you do have your business plan, you have your vision, you have your big dreams, but I don't know, in a way that youth just, just helped me take one, take it one step at a time and glow and grow slowly and organically. And I think that's why the model today has been what it's become. And yeah, I'm really grateful that to be long story short, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a teacher. We were a normal family. I had privileges going to a really good public school and, but it wasn't like, okay, here's a million dollars from the UN. Go create this. Um, you know, what are you going to do to solve the world's poverty problems? It wasn't that it was the exact opposite. It was 5,000 babysitting money. And I think that's why the story resonated with, with people and slowly as it did um, have traction, especially in like the girly magazines and <laughs> it, it, um, it did spread and it also spread in a really slow nurturing kind of organic way. I, I, I think that's, yeah, like you said, that's why it resonated. Although I, I do have to ask, like you guys continued expanding. So you said in those blissful five, six, seven years, you were just making ends meet and then you guys started to, to blossom. Like how were you concentrating fundraising efforts here in the United States when, when you were there? Is that when you started assembling a bigger team? You know, how did that go down? Right. Um, so we, it was, how did it start? So we, um, you know, just had this little budget and I come from a really awesome town in suburban New Jersey. It's the Morristown, Mendham area. And, you know, we had enough and, and then what happened is, I think if you ask me if I have one superpower, like I'm a pretty really normal girl, like there's really not a whole lot that's, you'd meet me and be like, oh yeah, she's just like my kid or like, <laughs> but I think my superpower is that I know how to bring in really good people and, I, and I, I'm good at kind of being able to figure out who good people are. And so slowly, little by little. It was building that team, knowing that I didn't have all the answers and I needed to find that, find them, knowing that I need to be resourceful and building that team around me. Um, And then it was like the first little step. So Cosmo Girl Magazine called and they were like, we're looking for young people who are changing the world. You're it. And we're going to do a Maybelline makeover on you and fly you to New York City. And then it was Glamour Magazine, Glamour Woman of the Year. 
and then it was time for kids. Can we call, was... can we call a hard timeout? Can we call a hard timeout <laughs> on the juxtaposition of giving someone a makeover when you're like, I'm trying to effing, oh, I'm a dad of two girls, okay? So like, I don't even know how to respond. Like, God, God bless them. That's awesome. We want to help you. But like, seriously, bro, mascara? Like, uh, I know. I know. Sorry. I couldn't let that irony just slide by. I had to call a hard time out. They say, they say, um, they said, you know, we're going to give you $20,000. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to build a couple more bedrooms for my children. And oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to dig that well for clean water. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then the woman on the other end of the line goes, but it gets even better. And I remember being 20 and thinking, what could possibly be better than $20,000? What could be better? And she goes, we're going to whisk you away into New York City for a Maybelline makeover. And my heart just, you know, it's, it, I had the same reaction that you did. It's like, what? We're going to sell lipstick and mascara? But I will say this though, like at least they started off with, we want to fund things first and then give you makeover. They did not start off with makeover then. So, you know, Good. And 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 when the story hit, I mean, you know, this was the time before iPhones, before smartphones, before I had this little blog journal, and I kept little journal entries. And writing has been a really, a really healing and kind of way that I process. And so when that story hit, girls all over America found the blog. The website shut down. It crashed. It had never seen that many that much traffic. And what I realized is that young women, girls all over, you know, places like Indianapolis did not care about the makeup. They cared about the story. They cared about some, finally seeing something different than celebrity culture. And that I think they saw in me themselves and that they believed in that purpose. And they thought, oh my gosh, that's also really cool. And, and I realized in that era, um, the importance of telling your story and then crafting the story the right way and I think that helped me kind of get through that next transition of also realizing that you know there was a story to tell because I don't think I saw that in that first five or six years I was just doing my thing and learning about being a mom and going through that era and so then I think the big shift in telling the story also came from me where I realized there was a story to be told and that girls were starving for it people were starving for hope and seeing that they can make a difference. Right. Well, in the day and age, sometimes, again, I'm showing my true colors as a, as a dad. Um, but uh, I want to see female empowerment that has nothing to do about your looks. Oh my God. I, 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 want, I want my daughters to do good in the world and not have to obsess about how they're perceived or how they look like it's it's what you're doing and i i <laughs> two things still ironic of but like h- how did you then actually this isn't really a, a vanity question but like when all of a sudden all this media attention started did that like was it a distraction how did you get like when things calmed down then were things back to normal? Did you lose a part of yourself? I mean, like, cause like yeah, there for a while, yeah. cause I like, I'm glad that this conversation is, you know, four years, five years after some of the, the height of like your, your, your media frenzy. Um, 
looking back, uh, you know, what has changed? How did it change? Did it bring about awesomeness? Did it bring about distractions? That kind of stuff. The thing about living in Nepal is that things are real. And it was a very grounding force. I mean, it's, it's, you can't get carried away in, um, you know, I think it helps you see the facade of like, you know, that whole glamour magazine Cosmo Girl world when you're in it, when you're in the depths of humanity and the depths of despair, when you're watching children who are hungry, when you're watching children traffic, when you're watching that 14 year old girl get married off, when you're seeing a child lose its parents, when you're, um, you know, really in the, that place, that, that true place of suffering. And it, never allowed me I mean I've never just been in the states long enough to let I'm here for like a month or two and then I'm like okay it's time to go back to that reality because both are real right um and um yeah do I have moments where I get caught up in what I look like and I'm like I just had a biological baby two years ago and I'm worried about the baby weight and that I can't wear my jeans still and I have those moments of superficial and wanting to look a certain way. And I have to practice, you know, my own ground. That's our work here as humans. Life is hard and we have to do that work. Um, and we all have moments where we get caught up in the outer and the external because it's, it's so hard not to, right? We have a society that tricks us into believing we are what we look like. We are what we buy. We are what we consume. We are who we hang out with and our, and, and our, you know, how many likes we have on Instagram. And, um, we all, because we all have an ego, there are moments where you get a little off track. And I think the most important and critical work that all of us need to do as human beings is be grounded in truth and in self and in our own reality. And I think Nepal has always been, and my children have always been, you know, how can you get caught up when you have the eyes of a child to stare into and people who need you? And I think I'm really, I live in these polar opposites parts of the world and these you know I'm sitting in suburban New Jersey right now that the town that I grew up in and and I need this I need this too because this is where I come from and um, I'm lucky and I'm privileged that I get to have both so um, I think it's just staying true to oneself and staying grounded in truth and for me the truth lies in my children I almost don't want to ruin this by wrapping up um, one thing I noticed, uh, in watching, you know, on YouTube that your, your acceptance on, on the CNN award, there was this shot of you looking uncomfortable of mm-hmm. all the glamor and all this. You're like, I just, I could see it in your eyes. Like the sense of, I, this isn't the real work. And the almost uncomfortableness of you're like, okay, let's get on with it. I've got a job to do. Uh, I saw that in your eyes and I thought, man, that is what, that is, the, that is a heart of a champion. That is a heart of a person that lives to serve. And, and that pales in comparison to what you just wrapped up with. And the fact that you do live in two worlds and you're blending them and you are serving children. And I am, I am flattered to talk to you today. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy you uh, and your work so much. Um, 
it, please let's let's uh, direct people to where they can go to learn more, uh, make a donation. Where can we find all that? Oh, thank you. Um, follow us on Blink Now. We're the Blink Now Foundation, blinknow.org. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. We'd love to have you in our lives, sharing our story. And we are just striving for a world where every child is safe and educated and loved. Maggie, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I I will be talking offline. Um, but I, yeah, uh, thank you so much for what you do and being the example of knowing that there's more and doing something about it. Uh, you are a tremendous person and thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you, Don.